We've been going through the book of John here, uh, sermon series, It's Time. Now, uh, a lot of you know that professionally, again, I'm a, I'm a teacher, uh, so I, I teach for a living, and I'm, I'm a pastor, and I preach, and some of you may know my alter ego, Dr. Un, and I do game shows, and uh, I entertain the crowd. Now, I think a lot of you may not realize I am actually also an author. I don't want to brag here, but... Uh, Two years ago for Christmas, I wrote this book. I wrote it for my family. Uh, it's called The Adventures of El Seed. Uh, it's an altar name that I use sometimes. Uh, and it's a story about how my wife and I met. Uh, and so I put my family uh, into the story. I tried to get the artist rendition as, as close as possible to what I look like there. Um, you know, but, but it's a story about how we met, and, and the kids often will like to hear about how, my, how Chris and I met, and there, there are a lot of times some variations in the story in terms of how it goes and different villains that show up, but the end of the story is always the same, that by the end of the story, Krista has fallen madly in love with me, and after I have saved her, she always says, my hero. Now... At this point, usually in the story, if the kids haven't already ran out of the room, they usually cover their ears and, and they go running out. But, but I had just started this silly thing that we had done, and for whatever reason, I thought maybe I'll turn this into a comic book here. Uh, and one of the things that I, I did with it was I, I wrote all of my children into the story. And so as we're going through the story, you know, there's, there's different characters that help El Cid, and they, it's all based on their personalities and their interests. Uh, so, so Remy likes to, to tinker and, and engineer, and, and uh, Catalina's just, you know, she's a little, little mother and very caring. And uh, Weston uh, likes to, to work with his hands, so he was kind of a, a builder, construction guy. Lincoln likes to dress up uh, and, and, you know, live in this fantasy world, so he was a ninja. Uh, and, and Branson likes to put on animal costumes. Uh, so he was like my pet tiger uh, in the story. And, and as we got to the end of the story, on, on one of the last pages, what I did was I actually revealed my kids' faces that like you guys were part of this story. And so it was a memorable experience and, and it, it was a really fun and neat thing that we did. But I, I share this story of how I put my family into a book because last week Dave mentioned this idea that we have all been written into the Bible. You may not have realized that, but, but your name is in there. And we're going to see that today of how Christ has written each and every one of you into the scripture. And you, you, again, you may not have ever realized this. And that's what I want us to see today. And I hope you understand how awesome that is that long ago, you know, we're, we're talking over 2,000 years ago, Christ had put your name into the scriptures. So again, if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up. We're going to be in John 17. 
Um, again, he's been working with his disciples. We're looking at this final ministry. He's preparing them for the death that's going to come. He's providing encouragement. He's, he's letting them know this is what's going to happen. There's going to be difficulties and you're going to be worried and persecution. But don't worry, I have overcome. Uh, I, I, I am victorious in all of this, you know, and I'm going to come back for you. And so he's, he's letting his disciples know. And then he transitions and he steps back. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at this prayer that he had in John 17. And so he starts this prayer with praying for his glory and God's glory. And, and that then he prays last week, as Jason uh, spoke to us about, he prays for his disciples. He prays for their protection and their sanctification, that they would be protected by the word and the truth of God as they move forward into this world. And so we're going to be looking at this final part here. In John chapter 17, the third part of his prayer. So verse 20, he starts with this. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So again, he's, he's preparing for the cross here. He doesn't have a lot of time left. And so the last things that we have recorded, I, I want us to understand the importance of this, right? Again, it's the final words that anybody could be saying. It's one of the final prayers that Christ is going to offer up. And these are the final things he's choosing to pray and to talk about. So we have to understand there's a, a level of magnitude to what he's saying, okay? So his prayer is, is for this message. And again, what, what is this message? It's the message that these disciples have been given, that, that man is a sinner, that man deserves death, that Christ is going to become the perfect Lamb of God, and his blood that is shed is, or is about to be shed is going to cover over our sins to deal justly with the punishment and wrath of God, removing that wrath from us and allowing us to enter into the relationship with God, and that, what, that several days later he's going to rise again to prove the, the authority and the validity of everything that he's been saying. That is the message that, that these disciples are going to be given here. And that's what he's praying for. And, and the result of this is what we call the gospel, or literally translated the good news. Right? This is when we say we're going to, we want to share the gospel. We want to share that man is a sinner saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And that he rose again right, and died for us. Uh, and the result of all of this is that there will be belief in me. Belief in Christ. Okay, So the result of this prayer is going to be a belief in Christ. Because Christ is what he's laying out in this little final prayer. This is a commitment to evangelism. This is a Christ commitment that there is going to be a continued proclamation of the word of God going forward. And this proclamation is going to be carried through his disciples. Now, this is not something completely new or foreign. He kind of referenced this idea earlier in John 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know my sheep. And I would lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also and they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
And so earlier as he's talking about himself as the good shepherd, he's saying, listen, guys, there's other sheep that aren't here. And he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. But he said, there's other people that are going to hear my voice. They're going to follow me. They're not here yet, but they will be. So he's already established prior to this prayer the evangelical work and the nature that he desires to see. And so if the result of all of this is belief in Christ... What does this belief then look like? So now we're going to read the next part of the passage here, 21 to 23. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me so that we may be brought to complete unity And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me as you have loved me. So the prayer is for the message to go forward. The result of that prayer is going to be belief in Christ. And the result of what that belief in Christ looks like is going to be a complete unity between God the Father and Christ and us. And that unity is going to be the basis, is going to have that foundational aspect of love. Okay? Now... That oneness is oftentimes reflected in how we look at the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That that oneness is how the scriptures capture the essence of a marriage between a husband and a wife. This is the type of unity that he is talking about here. Now, we know that in the scriptures, this is a really big deal. Because in Galatians 5, when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh, he specifically lays out in verse 20 that, um, that dissension and factions are a sin. Right? When, when there is disunity in our lives, Christ is saying that is a sin, guys. And I'm not talking about the fact that we like disagree on something. Right? But, but, but we're talking about a unity in spirit with one another. Right? If we profess to be the body of Christ and we can't get along with one another, then that is an issue and that is a sin in our lives that has to be dealt with. And, and again, as I said, I'm not talking about like doctrinal issues, right? We're, we're not talking about something like the inerrancy of God's word. We're not talking about the divinity or humanity of Christ. We're not talking about the idea that we are saved by faith. Like those are non-negotiables that, yes, we all have to agree on. The problem becomes when we, we disagree on things like denominational lines or, or peripheral matters. Like do, do we baptize people once or do we baptize three times? Does it matter if I wear a shirt and tie or if I wear a pair of jeans? Does it matter if we have an organ or an electric guitar? Those are the kind of things that we fight over at times that Christ is saying you've missed the whole point. That is sinful division because that is irrelevant to the bigger picture of what unity is supposed to look like. Because when we have true, complete unity under the headship of Christ, we see this that in Galatians 3, it completely annihilates any division here, right? So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in the Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor female or male, for all of you were one in Christ. 
The radical nature of unity eliminates anything along economic, social, gender, right, hierarchy type of lines. Complete unity gets rid of all of that. And we end up seeing that unity then later in the book of Revelation when he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that's, that's again what we need to think about. Because again, we do, we fight over these, these ridiculous types of arguments. And at the end of the day, those that believe in Christ, we are all going to be in heaven praising the Father together. And all of those silly things that we divided the church over, over, over what color are the pews, and do we take the flowers uh, you know, off the wall, like, those things are ridiculous. But we get sucked into that because that's what Satan wants for us. And what Christ is praying here is that we would understand this true unity is where we need to constantly adhere ourselves to. And so it's found in the person in the salvation of Christ. And that unity then is then exhibited by our love. Right. That's how we know when there's true unity. Right. If you and I can disagree, but we can still love each other, then that's unity. Right. If we can still share the bonds of being adopted children of God, despite what we may think about this issue or that issue, and we still care for one another intensely and deeply the way that Christ did for us, then that is the true unity that he is longing for within us. And so, again, he, he, he shares this idea that this is why marriage is so sacred to us, right? People often talk about, you know, why is it that Christians are so against the idea of same sex? Well, again, scripturally, it's wrong. But on a deeper level, marriage is reflective of his love for the church, and what that unity for the church looks like. And so in Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your lives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? This is the kind of love a husband and a wife are to have for one another. Because it's the way that Christ loved us that he said, I'm willing to die for you, to sacrificially give everything for you. And it's the same kind of love that we talked earlier, way back in January, about how Christ commanded us to then love one another. And what does he say there in John 13? He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the prayer is for the message, sinners saved by the grace and by the blood of Christ. And that the result of that prayer is going to be belief in Jesus Christ. And the result of that belief then in Christ is going to be a unity that is reflective of the Trinity and reflective of a marriage. And that we are going to love one another, again, the way that Christ loved us. Unconditional, agape, sacrificial love that says, I'm willing to die for you kind of love. And when we love each other that way, guys, when we love each other that way, the unbelieving world looks at the church and says, that's so 
different. Why do you love like that? And then we get to share the love of Christ. That's how this prayer is playing out here. Okay, and so, so now he's going to go on. Christ isn't done praying the prayer yet. So now we come to verse 24, and he says this. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me, where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So again, my prayer is for the message. My prayer is for belief. My prayer is for unity. My prayer is that unity is based on love. And my prayer is this because I want them to be with me. Christ desires us to be in relationship with him. Again, the unbelieving world will often look at our God and say, God is not loving because he sets these standards of righteousness and holiness that somehow infringe upon their own happiness and infringe on their own freedom. Right? God can't be good because God doesn't let me do whatever I want. But God is a God of justice, and he's going to deal with our, our deserved punishment for those that don't believe. And the world turns around and goes, God's not loving. He doesn't care. No, he does, he's, this is what he's praying for. He's praying this because he cares about you and me. He's praying this because he wants us to be in relationship with him. And we see this elsewhere in the scriptures. First Timothy, right? He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In Romans 5, it says, see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die because you were perfect or a good person. He died for you in the mess of your sin. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. See, Romans 5 doesn't happen if Christ doesn't care about you and me. John 3.16 doesn't happen if Christ doesn't care about you and me. And Christ never goes to the cross if he doesn't care about you and me. That's why he's praying this prayer. Because he loves us. He loves us so much that he's about to endure the cross for us. And he's praying this and he's praying. He says, God, I want these people to know. I want these people to know how much I love them. That's, that's why he started. I'm praying for those that are going to believe. And then he finishes the last portion here of the prayer in 25 and 26. He says, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me, and I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that myself may be in them as well. Right? So he sandwiches the prayer for, for praying for those, right, that they would, they would believe the message, and then he finishes it again, that he says, I'm going to continue to make this known. I'm going to continue to commit myself to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do it through my disciples. I'm going to do it through the church. 
Because he, he's not just coming for a particular group of people. He's just not coming for a, a, a particular number. Christ just says, I have died for the world. I've died to give myself to anybody that's willing to enter into a relationship with me. Right? And we already saw that, that, again, it's not man or woman. It doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. Right? It doesn't matter rich or poor. Christ has come to die for all men. And as I said, again, let's understand the significance of this prayer. This is essentially the, the last prayer that we have of Christ before the cross. He's saying, if I've only got one prayer left, this is the prayer that I'm offering up. I'm praying for my glory. I'm praying for the glory of the Father, because that's what we said. This whole world, the scriptures are all about the glorious nature of Christ. And I'm praying for my disciples. I'm praying that you protect them, Father, because the world is going to hate them and want to persecute them. It's going to want to, to, to throw them into jail and silence their voice, and if need be, is going to take their life from them. I'm praying for them, Father. And now he says, I'm praying for anyone else that may believe in this. Last week, when Jason spoke... And we, we talked about how he prayed for his disciples. I, I want us to go back to the one verse in verse 15 there. In, in verse 15, I find it interesting that Christ says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Christ didn't pray that his disciples would be eliminated from all difficulties, trials, persecutions. His prayer wasn't, God, just magically, you know, uh, beam them up into heaven. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, again, we love our families and, and we love the people here, but there's a lot of hard stuff here. And could you imagine, like, the moment that you put your faith into Christ, it was like the angelic lights come down and then you just start to slowly rise into heaven and you're like, yes, I get to go to heaven. Wouldn't that be glorious? And all of the, 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 the filth and the muck and the problems that we deal with, we'd never have to worry about ever again. Wouldn't that be awesome? But Christ is like, no, that's not the way it's going to work. That, that's, that's not what I'm praying. I'm actually praying against the opposite of that. I'm praying that Christ keeps you here, is that I, and as we've already looked in the scriptures in the sermon series, that not only am I keeping you here, but I'm telling you you're going to be persecuted and people are going to hate you in the process. So not only do you get to stay here, but, but life is going to be hard at times. But that's why he starts this prayer. Again, this, this portion of this prayer, right? He says, my prayer is not for them alone but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, right? When he says, so, so we know what the message is. And when he says their message, he's talking about who? He's talking about the disciples, right? I'm praying for the disciples' message of me. I'm praying that as they go forward, I'm putting a, a ton of emphasis, Lord, that you protect them in this world over this. Because again, he said, I've committed myself to not just this world, but to all future generations of this world. And it's going to happen through the church. 
It's going to happen through my disciples. They, they are going to be the ones that are responsible now to spread this forward. And when Christ died, when he goes to the cross and he dies and he comes back and he raises again and he, he spends this little final portion of time on this world. Again, we have these little final nuggets of truth that he shares. And what does he tell us in Matthew 28? One of the last things that he shares with his disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then what we see in Acts, like literally the last thing that he tells his disciples before he ascends back up to heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Again, th this is the final thing that he could have said to anybody. This is the final thing that he could have said to the disciples. He could have said anything he wanted. And what does he tell them? He says, you now have a mission to go share my gospel to the very ends of the earth. What that means is you are going to go to the deepest, darkest jungles of the Amazon. You are going to go to the most crowded city. You are going to go to the barren wastelands of the Siberian tundra and, and to, the, to, to the Sahari desert. And that is where you are going to go. And you are going to go and you are going to preach my message because I've committed myself to this world that they will hear my message through you. Now, when I, when I started this message, right, I, I shared this story about how I ripped my family into this book that I wrote. And I said, Christ did the same for us. And I don't know if you've been seeing it, but did you catch your, your name in there? Did you, did you guys see? You probably missed it. So let me, let, me help you out. let me help you out with this. When he started, he said, my prayer is not for them alone. But he said, I pray also for Adam, who will believe in me through their message. How cool is that? Christ was prepared to go to the cross, and he said, I'm praying for Adam Kenneth LaRue. Go ahead, good. Put your name there, guys. Put your name there. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for, go ahead, insert your name. Say it. Christ was praying for you before you were even born, and he did it before the cross. Because, see, here's what happened. 2,000 years ago, he told some disciples. And those disciples told somebody, and those disciples told somebody, and those disciples told somebody. And it went on and on and on until that message finally hit my ear, and I understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what I did? I believed. And now there is a unity between me and the Father and a love that exists. And now I'm one of his disciples. And so here's the other cool part. Not only did he pray for me to believe, but he prayed for me as a disciple. Did you guys catch that one too? You probably missed that one too. So let me show you how Christ was praying for me again. Uh, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for, I have no idea who he was praying for, but he's praying for whoever that person is, that they will believe through the message that Adam shares with them. 
right? Now that I'm a disciple, I have the same responsibility to go forward to share this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and through my message that he gave me, somebody somewhere is going to believe. And I don't know who that is. I don't, it, could be, it could be tomorrow. It could be a week from now. It could be a year. It could be 10 years from now. I have no idea. It could be a multitude of people. I have no idea how many people Christ inserted there when he put my name that he was praying for me when I share the message. You know, we use the term evangelism, right? And for a lot of us, I think when we hear that term evangelism, we cringe, we get a little tense. Ooh, I got to go out and share the gospel. I'm just going to go out into the street and I'm just going to start sharing with people in the supermarket. Right? What are my friends going to think? What, is, what are my family going to think? People are going to think I'm weird. Are they going to yell at me? Are they going to hate me? Right? And we run through all of these scenarios in our minds. And we work ourselves out of sharing the, the gospel because we're so terrified of what's going to happen. Well, just remember, guys, he's speaking to the, the disciples right now. And how do they feel? They're terrified. They're like, wait, you're going to go away and you're going to die and you're going to leave us? You can't do that. Jesus, Jesus, we need you. And, and as Jason said last week, he calls them the bad news bears of ministry, right? But Christ is confident that his disciples are going to get it right. And when Pentecost happens and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes down on them, th this timid, fearful group of disciples turns into a bold and strong group of missionaries that takes the message to anywhere they go, despite the hardships and, and persecutions and trials they face. I mean, what happens to the disciples? They're killed for their faith. So in one moment, they're cowering in a corner, and then in the next moment... They're boldly proclaiming, willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power that came upon those disciples is the same power that exists in you and I. I think we often forget that. We often forget that what these men and women did in the Bible is extraordinary because of the Spirit, but it's the same extraordinary Spirit that we have and so if you think that you are not wise enough to share the gospel, if you think that you are not talented enough to share the gospel, if you don't think that your words are going to come across in a way that's going to be good enough for people to hear the gospel, let me just remind you that that is not the spirit of Christ, but that is the spirit of the evil one lying into your ear. And so I want to encourage you to not listen to that lie, but to look at the proclamation of the cross, because that's the truth that you need. And if you need another little piece of confidence, again, let's go back to the verse of what he says is going to happen. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will, who will, who will believe, will. Guys, that's a definitive of what's going to happen. The proclamation of Christ does not go empty. Now, I'm not saying that every single person you share the gospel with is instantly going to get on their knees 
and, and, and seek forgiveness and repentance and call Christ their Lord and Savior. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, because this is what Christ just promised us, is that if you share your faith, if you share the gospel, somebody somewhere at some point is going to believe. That is a guarantee by Christ. So if you are worried that it's not going to go well, if you're worried that it's going to be fruitless, that again is a lie, because this message will bear fruit. And so we have to remember as well that this is Christ's plan. He's committed us to be a part of his plan. But he committed us to share. Guys, we, we've never been asked to save people because you and I can't save anyone. And it's only through the blood and the power of Christ that anyone is saved. So if you think that somehow you have to try to, to force and, and wrangle and convince someone into Christ, that's not your job. Your job is to love on people and to share the love of Christ. God's going to take care of everything else. He's simply asking us to have a heart for all men the way that he did. And so this is, this is our prayer. Let us have confidence. Let us have boldness. And let us this week, this month, this year, and for the rest of our lives... Let us commit ourselves to praying for those who will believe. And maybe it might help you if you insert people's names. Think about family, friends, coworkers that don't know Christ and pray for them. And don't stop praying for them. Because it may take 20 or 30 years before the spirit breaks through the hardness of the heart. But this is what Christ is calling us to. This is what he's calling Penn Valley Church to. That we will share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, what an awesome responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility because we first understand the awesome and magnificent nature of you. God, that you loved us, you desired us to be with you in the state of our sinfulness. And that we get to be called children of God in complete and amazing, wonderful unity. That there is a love like no other that has been shared between you and I. But Lord, that wasn't the end of your prayer. We rejoice in that, but that's just the beginning of a journey for us. A journey that says we walk with you proclaiming you wherever we go, praising your mighty, glorious name. And Lord, I, I pray. I pray for those that don't know you. May each one of us be emboldened to have confidence, not in our own abilities, but in your spirit, to seize the moment, to seize the opportunity when your spirit is prompting us to proclaim your name. Maybe it is in a grocery store. Maybe it's, in, maybe it's in the car shop. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in a park. But Lord, we pray for those. And I pray for each one of us, God, that you protect us in this process as you said you would. And I pray for us, Lord, that we would rest in the confidence and the power of who you are to accomplish what you said you would do. We merely, Lord, get to be the vessels and the joy of that. 
In all of this, amen.